Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. So we're looking at the, you know, the, the heart of, of a leader and what a, uh, a consideration this is. We're going to be or start in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 9, which by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, we are years into the reign of, of David, who is now reigning over all of Israel, not just Judah, but, but the nation as a whole, chapter 8 gives us one of the, the clearest depictions, if you would, of the second coming of Christ, because in that chapter you see David defeat the enemies of Israel. You see this very visible, aggressive expansion of the kingdom there in Second Samuel chapter 8. At the end of that chapter, we see him appoint men to positions of leadership in his kingdom, who are going to rule and reign with him, which gives us a very clear millennial picture. But when we get to chapter 9, we see what has been described as one of the clearest expressions of grace in the Old Testament with David's dealings and handlings with Mephibosheth, which we're going to talk about this morning. We see David show him the kindness of God. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. And in that, David exemplifies Christ and Mephibosheth. That's going to be a tongue twister, right? That of a sinner who is in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. And so as it relates to our focus on examining the heart of a leader, we observe something in David at this point of his reign, and you really see this on full display early on in the book of 2 Samuel, you you see something in the heart of David that is beautiful. We observe the heart of a giver. And and this this is the heart that we absolutely want to operate from, that we must operate from in ministry, the heart of a giver. And this is glorifying to God because it is consistent with his character. It is consistent with the heart of God. God himself is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Matthew seven eleven. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So this ushers us right away to another critical leadership observation as it relates to this this heart of, of, of a giver, and it is this. The heart of a biblical leader is a heart of generosity. Biblical leaders, godly leaders, are very Christ-like 
in that they're very generous people. They, they, they have hearts that are just set on giving. As we know, David was a man after God's own heart, and that is a heart that is set to giving. It's set to that, not taking, but giving. And in typifying Christ, what David gave Mephibosheth ultimately was life. I mean, is there a greater gift to give other than that? And that's exactly what you see as you as this narrative unfolds in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But the urgency in this for this week is great as we consider the next generation. Because as important as it is for us to make sure that that we pass on a a faith-based view of the scriptures, as important as it is for us to, to, to pass on sound doctrine, what is as important is that we pass on the heart of Christ, is that we, we, we pass on this kind of character and ministry that is set before them. We have to covet this as much. Because at the end of the day, we can pass on sound doctrine, we can pass on a faith-based view of the scriptures as we should, but people can still face plant in ministry if they don't have the heart of Christ. They can, have the, they can have the knowledge. They can have that data set. But if they don't get this, they're going to flame out eventually. Okay? So we jump in at 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto unto and had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir to the son of Amiel from Lodabar. So we need to, once again, reiterate how critical it is and how godly this kind of heart is. The word kindness is akin to the word grace as we know. And this word kindness, it shows up in this chapter like three times in the first seven verses. So it is clearly something that is being emphasized. But in 1 Samuel 24, we see there that David swore to King Saul that he would not cut off his seed after him and that he would not destroy his name out of his father's house. And so as you're reading through 2 Samuel, the thing that you're seeing is you're seeing that You're seeing David wax stronger and stronger, and you're seeing the house of Saul wax weaker and weaker because God was fulfilling or working out his plan. David played no direct part whatsoever in the deaths of of those who were in the house of Saul, including the death of Abner, 
who was Saul's first cousin and the commander of Saul's army. David had no hand in his death. You see the same thing with Ishbosheth, who, who became king at Abner's doing, if you would. David had no hand in his death. So you see David keeping his word, but he also made as significant of a promise to Jonathan, his soul brother, if you would. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 14. It says, And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, this is Jonathan, show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So by the time you get to this point, any leaders who would have been in Saul's regime, they're off the scene, if you would, right? The throne of David over Israel and over Judah has been set up, and David's kingdom is exploding at this point. So why would he need to concern himself with showing kindness to anyone who's in the house of Saul? Why? A house that was predominantly... Um, the, the reason for great distress and heartache and pain and difficulty in his life, it was because he had given his word. He had given his word. So here is another observation about the heart of a biblical leader. And before I give it to you, let me just say, this one, I mean, none of them are cheap. But this one is very expensive. It's very expensive. The heart of a biblical leader is a heart of integrity. It's a heart of integrity. I understand that this is a well-used term in the leadership discussion. Anytime you're talking about leadership, even in the secular environment, people will talk about integrity, and, and I get that. But we need to remember and respect that it is a biblical term as well, for sure. And in Job chapter 2, we see just how rich this trait of integrity is. Job 2, verse 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Job 2.9, then said his wife unto him, dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, this word integrity, obviously it's a very big term. It just simply means innocence. So it is akin to the trait of being blameless, right? So this is the opposite of being guilty of something. Because this is where, for me, this gets somewhat challenging, very, I would say, uber-challenging, because consider God's testimony 
of his servant Job, after God allowed Satan to destroy his property, to take the lives of his children, consider God's testimony about his servant Job. And still he holdeth fast his integrity. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. I can't read that. I can't think on that without asking myself, can God say that about me? I mean, this is what, this is God's commentary. God was saying that Job was a man of integrity. After God allowed, or even to some extent, had a hand in the catastrophe that he's experienced up to this point, and even after this point, that says he held fast his integrity. Am I a man of integrity? Listen, uh, few considerations will chisel you like this one. Like this one. Job 1.22 says that Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. In a horrific, inexplicable hour, he held fast his integrity. But not only did God recognize that Job was a man of integrity, so did his wife. I think we would agree. If there are two people who know... <laughs> If we are people of integrity, it would be God and our spouse, right? <laughs> if anybody knows if we are, those two for sure, they know. Uh, we might be able to fool a lot of people in ministry, but we can't fool them. <laughs> when it comes to this conversation, when it comes to this issue of integrity. But had David not sought out someone left in the house of Saul to show kindness to for Jonathan's sake, he would have been guilty of not keeping his word. He would not have been a man of integrity. He would not have been a man who was blameless, which would have been a mark against his character. David was the king. His kingdom was expanding at this point. Listen, the average person in the kingdom would not have had an issue whatsoever with David not thinking about, let alone showing kindness to anybody, to the house of Saul. They knew the history. They knew what the house of Saul meant to David, what the house of Saul had did to David. They knew that. So why would they be like, I can't believe you're not showing kindness to the house of Saul? I mean, people would have been thinking about that. But the issue was, and this is how people of integrity, this is how they walk, this is how they think, this is how they operate. The issue is God knew. God knew what he had promised. And if there's one thing that leaders of integrity learn is that God's memory is impeccable. And he will always remind us of what we know to be right in his eyes. God is faithful to do that. I don't know about you, but there were times in my life where the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance something that God has clearly revealed to me in the Word of God, and it's like, wow, 
boy, if there's ever a time where I wish I didn't hear that, it was right now. <laughs> because this could not be a more inconvenient time to do that. This is expensive. This is really going to hurt. So it doesn't matter what others don't know or what they may have forgotten. Here's what it comes down to, James 4.17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? It is sin. David knew what was right. David knew what was good. Had he not sought to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, it would have been sin. A critical leadership truth that never escapes me is that, and Brandon and, and there, Brandon and I are gonna we're gonna touch on similar things, and and any time that happens, that means the Holy Spirit wants to make sure we don't lose something, right? But one of the things that never escapes me in ministry leadership is that position and power always expose the character of a person. They do. They always do. David had the position and the power to extend human life or extinguish it. What determined which one of those he chose was his integrity, was his heart. Joseph also was in a position of power, and he had the same opportunity. Both men chose generosity. They had a heart of generosity. We move ahead in the narrative here in chapter 9 and to make another critical observation. And, and uh, you know, Brandon spent an entire his time in, in one chapter, and, and, man, I really fought with that. Uh, but I do want to draw a, a contrast um, clearly between David here, and then we're going to see his heart a little bit later. And so, but I do, I do wanna, want us to see something here that will absolutely build on uh, where we're going to be going in the next two days. So I, I, think that's, I think that's very important. But when Mephibosheth was summoned to stand before David, he thought he was finished. I mean, just like Agag, right? <laughs> this is like, hey, can we, uh, can we reason together? <laughs> Doesn't the Bible say something about that, right? Which is why David told him to fear not. I mean, everything was stacked against Mephibosheth. I mean, he's the grandson of Saul. I mean, yeah, Jonathan, his father, was, was, was David's soul brother, but, man, he's nowhere around these days. He's gone, and, I mean, here I am. I'm just lame in my feet. I, I bring nothing to the table. I offer David nothing. I'm of no value to his kingdom. This is my last day. This is why he referred to himself as a dead dog. He knew it. I mean, he was worthless in his eyes. But David's heart was godly because he showered him with not only mercy, but grace. I mean, you read the rest of the story, you just go, wow. It wasn't just mercy, man. You see the grace of God on full display. But as we make our way to this next key point, I want to focus our attention on verses 10, 11, and 13. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread alway at my table. 
He shall eat at my table, verse 11, as one of the king's sons. Verse 13, for he did eat continually at the king's table. This is a beautiful picture of the sinner who's been saved by grace and adopted into the family of God, is it not? It's wonderful. And not just that, not only was Mephibosheth given the privilege of being a part of the king's family, but he's also extended the privilege of having a personal relationship with the king. I mean, he's sitting at the king's table in the king's palace. A man who, as in his own words, was a dead dog. Wow, that's amazing. So here's what we observe, though. The heart of a biblical leader is a heart of accessibility. A heart of accessibility. Mephibosheth had access to the king and all the blessings and privileges that came with that. I mean, he's just showered with grace. And that is true of us as believers in Jesus Christ today in this age. Consider Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we, have, we, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Ephesians 3.11 and 12, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, I can say, and in my heart, I do say amen to all of it. I think it's wonderful. I feel like Mephibosheth. I identify. I relate. Like, I'm not worthy of such access. I was a dead dog. <laughs> I'm unworthy. I can say amen to that. And Brandon hit on this, but I'll just tell you, I can... I can struggle with this particular trait in ministry, accessibility. I can. Over the years, uh, through unpleasant experiences, pastors can become guarded. They can become cautious, suspicious, and even distant. I don't think any pastor sets out to, 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 to be that way. Um, I've heard of stories where pastors will counsel men who are coming up in ministry, hey, keep your distance. You can't have friends with people who are in the congregation that will only backfire on you, that will only come to burn you later because of horrific experiences that they've had. Uh, one of the things that, that Sam uh, said years ago that's, that uh, has stayed with me, and, and that is, you know, once you're bit by the scorpion, you never forget it. That bite hurts, doesn't it? It stings like wildfire. 
It, it, it can change how you think and how you view people and all of that. But here is an indelible leadership principle truth that God brings me back to over and over again, and it is this. Leaders are not developed from a distance. We cannot develop leaders like this. Can't do it. Leadership development does not take place in a space or culture like that. That says, this is as close as you can get to me. That's not something that we want to pass on. Growing and developing leaders, they must have access to the leader. They, they, if, I can, if I can use a, a Sam expression, they, they've got to be at the seat of the leadership table. Like Mephibosheth, at the seat of the king's table. They need that kind of access to the king. A seat at the leadership table equals access to the leader. And ultimately, here's what they get access to. You ready? They get access to the heart of the leader. They get access to the heart of the leader, which they desperately need. We have a we have a weekly pastors meeting at MBT, so the pastors meet every week, and then twice a month, uh, we meet with a group of developing leaders in the church, growing. And I mean, these are, you know, uh, I, I liken them to they're like mighty men. I mean, these are men who haul a lot of ministry water at MBT. They they disciple, they teach the word of God. They counsel, they lead mission trips. I mean, they are our right arms, our left arms, our right leg, our left leg. I mean, these guys carry a lot of weight. They're invaluable, and we thank God for every one of them. We do. But what Sam does is he brings all those guys twice a month into a room where we just, we just meet with them. They get regular exposure or reinforcement to the DNA and the heartbeat of the ministry at MBT in terms of who we are and what we're about. Hey, we, we want to be a soul-winning, disciple-making, leadership-equipping, sending church. I mean, th- this is put before them with regularity. They're exposed to this. Uh, they get updated on critical things that are happening in, in the church in terms of things that we're dealing with, things that we need to pray about, things that we need to be careful about. I mean, some of these things are very delicate, very sensitive things that they're at the table uh, listening to and being a part of. It's a space for them to ask questions, and they will ask questions. They're, they're dealing with, I mean, they're doing mature ministry. And so as they are doing mature ministry, what's happening is is they are encountering complex ministry situations. So in this space, so Sam, I I had this happen, or I've got this counseling scenario, and what do you think? 
How should I deal with this? How should I handle that? It's really a special time. It's really cool to watch. But that group only continues to grow, which means more men are growing and getting access to Sam and to their pastors. Which brings me to, to, to establish this, and this is something that God had to make sure that I understood and to make sure that I, I, I keep in view as I continue to, to lead others in the Lord, but it is this. The pulpit cannot be the sole instrument for developing leaders. That cannot be the sole instrument. Does God use that? Oh, absolutely. It's critical. I'm not despising that whatsoever. I'm not saying it's insignificant. It's very significant. All I'm saying is, is that alone won't cut it if we're really looking to develop men and women in leadership. But ultimately, like we said, what they're getting access to, and this is where now they can really get your heart. Because if, if, if all we're doing is, is giving them exposure to us in a setting like this, what they're going to get primarily is our head. But what they get in that room twice a month on Tuesdays is they, they get this. Uh, there isn't an outline or a script or a prepared message. It's just we're in a room and we're together. I mean, it's a room a lot smaller than this. By the way, if, if I could attach this building to the airplane, we'd take it back with us. Wouldn't we, Midtown? <laughs> I mean, I, I thought you know, that whole respect of persons things. But now I look around this place and I think, man, the facilities. Man, God is good to First Baptist Church in New Philly, Ohio. <laughs> really good. <laughs> hey, I'm not jealous. I heard you talk about that. I'm not envious. I'm not jealous at all. Maybe just a little bit. So, You know, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't believe that I am, uh, like, I'm not the guy that, you know, if you want to have a great time, man, you got to hang out with Kenny. Like, I mean, bro, it is just fun. I mean, like, boy, but you know what? Here, here's, here's what I've come to, to discover. There are people, more than, than you would ever imagine, there are people that you minister to with regularity that crave quality time with you. They crave it. I mean, they really crave it. I mean, like, they would give almost anything just to sit down with you for two hours over breakfast, lunch, or dinner and have you all to themselves. Like, it, it, is, it is absolutely amazing to have access to you beyond your teaching environment. And those moments give them space to ask you questions. And you know what? They're not going to ask you questions about dispensationalism. That might come up, but that's rare, very rare. 
They're going to ask you any questions about that typically because they, get, they know where you stand on those things. And you've taught them where they should stand on those things, which they're appreciative of. But what they want to do, they want to ask you questions about marriage and family. They want to ask you questions about, you know, how, man, how, how do you deal with your wife in this situation? How do you deal with your children in this situation? Like they, they, they want to talk to you about those things. Uh, they want to talk to you about, they're considering a very serious career move. I had a guy not long ago. He's a godly man. Love him. Love him. Uh, he, he wanted to get together, and we, we sat down for hours. And he's like, you know, man, I, I married a godly woman. She's amazing. I mean, she is a mighty woman of God. And she is so strong in the Lord. Like, I, I don't even really know. I feel like she's fine. So I, I, I just kind of step back, and I just say, man, Lord, she's killing it. You know what he wanted help with? How do I lead a woman like that? How do I lead a woman who is a virtuous woman. He wanted to talk about that. And that's a great conversation. Sometimes they express doubts and fears about what God has called them to be and do in doing ministry. And they're wondering, man, can I, can I really do that? I mean, man, listen, I love you guys, and we're so th- I'm thankful that, that you would extend this kind of ministry privilege to me, but, bro, I'm trembling. <laughs> In that moment, it, it, they, they need you to, to show them that they can do it in the Lord. Sometimes... They need to confess something. An area that they're struggling in, an area they're not doing that well in, and God is not pleased, and they're struggling. And that access to you at your kitchen table or in a restaurant somewhere is just, it is vital to their development. It's like life and death. But see, here's what distance always does. Distance always paves the way for assumptions, doesn't it? Anytime you have distance in a relationship, you've got space for assumptions, right? And it's easy to assume that, well, hey, you know what? Man, people are showing up every week. We're, 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 we're teaching them sound doctrine. We're, we're feeding the sheep. We're feeding them well. They're coming, man. They got their Bibles. They're taking great notes. They're attentive. All of that. So we can assume that, well, everybody's doing just fine. And then those who keep showing up subtly, how about this, begin to develop assumptions about us, their leaders, why? Because there's distance. Assumptions like, 
we have it all figured out. We do. I mean, we stand in our pastoral glory weekly and preach the word and all that. Like we don't have problems and struggles. Like we don't shed tears. Like we don't hurt. I mean, their perspective of us is that we're bulletproof, invincible. We can't identify with their everyday life. And here's where that goes. Because there is something to the statement, perception being reality. So where that goes is, is in their mind, that's what leadership looks like. So I've got to now put on the face that I have it all together. That I don't have struggles. That I've got it all figured out. That I'm invincible. And they try that. And that's really dangerous. Um, I had an issue a few weeks ago. There are moments, right? We, we all have these moments. There are moments when the Lord says, pay attention to that. Don't ignore that. So there's a, there's a, there's a man in our ministry, and he is, he is near and dear to me. I've known him since he was a, a, a little boy. I, I coached him in basketball years ago. Uh, at the Kansas City Baptist Temple. He still calls me coach to this day. So he, he's in my uh, Sunday or adult fellowship at MBT, and, I mean, he, he may as well be like my son, Ken. He, he's that near and dear to me, okay? So we, there was a meeting after church, and um, so I was wanting to pick up pizza for the meeting. I said, hey, man, how about you tag along, and we'll just hang out for a bit, go, go get some pizzas. There's going to be a lot of them, so you can help me carry them. So... But we, we drive, and we're just hanging out, you know, chopping it up, as they say. Is that, is that a good phrase, chopping it up? It hasn't expired. You're the college young adult guy. If it is expired, you tell me. Chopping it up? You know what I mean, though, right? Like, we're just chopping it up. We're just, is that, oh, you're shaking your head, Code. Is that, am I out of date? Either. Okay. Context, right? The first rule of Bible study. How many of you know what I mean when I say chopping it up? Okay. Dallas, is that, am I good? Okay, that's all I need right there. Yeah. The, the tallest man in the room is giving me love. Okay. So we're chopping it up. He's a sports guy like me, so we're talking about sports and, and just having a good time. So we're, we're getting back to MBT, and, and we're at a, a traffic light not far from the church. And he goes, uh, I don't know, he was kind of incredulous, but he goes, Coach, you're pretty cool to hang out with. And I look and I go, yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's thanks. <laughs> and then he goes, this is what he said. And this is where the Lord said, pay attention. He said, if I didn't know you, I would not think I could do this with you. And he went on to say, man, just like, just sitting under your preaching, like, I just would not think I could go sit in a pizza shop with you and just, I'll give you my interpretation of what he said, chop it up with you. (laughs) And the Lord said, okay, just don't ignore that. 
At the end of the day, we're always sending messages, right? Intentionally or unintentionally. We're, we're always like nonverbal communication, all of that. We're always sending messages. So we have to be careful. And if I'm not careful, I can send the message that says, you can have access to me as long as I'm standing behind a podium or a pulpit. That's the access that you can have. Apart from that, sorry. Interesting. Now, are we going to be disappointed at times, let down? Yes. Yes. Is it going to burn to our core? Yes. But that was the experience of Jesus. It was the experience of Paul, right? We're not going to be any different whatsoever. But that's the price of developing leaders. And those who make it, make it worthwhile. They make the hurt. They make the disappointments. They make the setbacks. They make those gut-wrenching, horrific moments when you are gasping emotionally because you've been bit by the scorpion. And you go, but man, look at him and look at her and look at her and look at him and look at him and look at him. Not to our glory, but to God's glory to see what God is doing. You say, it's worth it. So that's a surface level look at the heart of a giving leader. We now fast forward to chapter 11 where we see a vivid contrast of being a giver or the heart of a giver. And now we see the heart of a taker. Same man <laughs> that we saw in chapter 9. Same man, but different heart here in chapter 11. Chapter 9, we see the heart of a taker, or the heart of a giver. Chapter 11, we see the heart of a taker. I recognize that this is trodden ground here in chapter 11, but there is a strong reason for that. This is this is a chapter that should never expire in the mind and heart of a biblical leader. This chapter never expires. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So a year had passed since the battle with the Ammonites started, and you see that in chapter 10, and it was now resuming, and the text tells us very clearly where David should have been at this moment. He should have been with his troops, right? Now, here's what's interesting. If you look in chapter 10 and verse 7, you see there that David did send Joab into battle against the children of Ammon. And you keep going in that chapter, you get to verse 17, you see at one point David himself joins them and engages in the battle himself. But what is clearly different in chapter 11 and verse 1 is the ending of the verse. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That has an ominous ring to it, doesn't it? It does. 
because his motives for tarrying still at Jerusalem were both selfish and irresponsible. They were. I don't believe for a second that David stumbled into this, that he was surprised to uh, have saw what he saw, right? His motives were selfish and irresponsible, but leaders who are takers are selfish people And here's what's disturbing about their hearts. We're going to see a few things. The heart of a selfish leader is a heart of irresponsibility. It's a heart of irresponsibility. And the imagery of that in leadership is very disturbing because sheep under an irresponsible leader essentially have no shepherd. They don't. It's like having someone babysit your children, and, I mean, you have toddlers, right? And you have someone babysit them, and they just let your kids go run outside and play in front of a busy street while they're inside watching Netflix. That's irresponsible babysitting. Someone's going to get hurt at a minimum. And irresponsible leadership is a word that we can easily associate with that of a hireling. Uh, Consider John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. Don't care. A hireling was essentially a, a hired hand, if you would, and, and when the sheep were in life or death situations, the wolf coming, they fled because they cared about money, not the sheep. They were takers. Jesus goes on to draw a contrast between himself and the hireling in John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus had the heart of a giver and gave his life for the sheep. Hirelings, on the other hand, had the heart of a taker and ran for their lives. What a contrast. Vastly different. And here is the solemn indictment about irresponsible leaders every time. Irresponsible leaders do not care for the sheep. They don't care. If I can borrow an expression from Sam, they're me monsters. They're all about themselves. And when they don't care for the sheep, listen, they're only interested in what they can take from the sheep. That's it. Uh, Church attendance is something that in leadership we all pay attention to, as we should. Uh, if we're going to know the state of our flocks, we 
kind of need to know how many are in the flock, right? That's reasonable. No issue with that. But here's the reality. The more sheep that are in the flock means that that's just that many more people that we are responsible to take care of. Uh, This is one of the things that we have to be very careful. Brandon talked about guarding our motives, right? We have to be very careful because if the motive is, well, we just want to have a bigger congregation because of all the perceived benefits of that, right? If we're going to have a a, a Genesis 11 mentality where we want to build this this monstrous thing and and make a name for us, and, and the bigger it gets, the better it looks, and the more nickels and dimes are coming through the door. If that's the motive now, then the people, the sheep, are just a means to an end. We really, we're not interested. It's just, yeah, bring them in, bring them in. And man, if they're saved, great. But after that, like, it's just, we just want them to do two things. We want them to keep coming and we want them for sure to start giving. <laughs> because, man, it's heart of a taker. This is one of the issues with megachurches. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you slice it, sheep need the direct presence, protection, and leadership of their shepherd. What did Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. They know it. How is it that they knew his voice? Because they knew him. Why? Access. Access. It's a massive responsibility the bigger it gets. It's massive. There have been times, and there are times, when I have been and I am tempted to just send a text message or to send someone in my place in a certain situation or I'll just catch that person on Sunday and see how things are going. And the Spirit of God will remind me that a good shepherd does not send a text message or send someone else, or wait to catch up with this person on Sunday. A good shepherd picks up the phone and lets the sheep know, hey, I'm aware, I'm available, and it could be I'm on my way. I'll see you in 20 minutes. That's responsible leadership, depending on the situation. But here it is. The irresponsible leader is nowhere to be found when their presence is desperately needed. I think we would agree. When the wolf is coming, (laughs) you need the shepherd there, don't you? You need the shepherd to be responsible and on the job protecting and taking care of the sheep. The next observation in the heart of a taker is we start in verse 2, and this is piercing. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed 
and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Aren't you grateful for how the Lord always warns us, goes above and beyond before we drive over a cliff? I mean, he got a massive warning here in terms of, listen, in terms of where you are going, the drop is seismic. And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. Now, we're going to revisit this on Wednesday. But there is conjecture regarding Bathsheba potentially tempting David to ultimately sleep her way into a more prominent role in his kingdom. Here's what is without conjecture. David was responsible for David. There's no conjecture there. He was responsible for himself. I am always responsible for me. Even in the face of great temptation, I am always responsible for me. But David compounded the situation by being irresponsible in his leadership. See, irresponsible leaders, here's what they always do. They always position themselves to be more irresponsible. This is what they do. If David was where he needed to be, this is not an egregious story for all to read. Would you agree with that? Had he been responsible, had he been focused on giving, not identifying what he could take for himself, this is not a story for us. And here's what we see when the heart transitions from being a giver to a taker in ministry. And, boy, if we can get this, the heart of a selfish leader is a heart of opportunity. It's a heart of opportunity. Takers are opportunists. They are. They live for it. They're opportunists. The David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 was not the David in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 was not a man after God's own heart. This man in this chapter was a man after his own heart. and saw an opportunity to take something for himself. He was like Shechem in Genesis 34. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, 
prince of the country saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. David saw Bathsheba, and verse 4 says he sent for her and took her, a taker. Like Shechem, his flesh identified something that he believed he had to have. And not only did he believe he had to have it, listen very carefully, because this is what happens in this transition from going from being a giver to a taker. And here it is again, position and power always reveal character, right? So now that he is the king, now that he is the man, now that he is over this impressive, sprawling, expanding kingdom, I'm entitled to it. I'm entitled. I get to have this. Would you hear this? In ministry, the flesh will always identify opportunities for leaders to become takers. The flesh will always show you this. Whether it be money, women, fame, privilege, position, power, whatever. The flesh will be faithful in that carnal regard to say, hey, look, look at what you can take for yourself. Look at what you have access to. You know what? Given all that you do, given all that you've done for these people, man, you, you've kind of earned it, bro. Get you some. Achan was a taker. The sons of Eli and Samuel were takers. Solomon, a taker. The money changers in the temple, takers. Judas Iscariot, a taker. Ananias and Sapphira, takers. False prophets and teachers made merchandise of others, takers. Churches have had to endure. And unfortunately, they will continue to have to endure from time to time vicious gut punches because of takers in leadership, where they've been left gasping and gutted because of a man or men who did, who did not have the heart of a giver. They had the heart of a taker. And man, they took. And in their wake, we find thousands upon thousands of dollars that are unaccounted for, families that have been torn apart and wrecked because of the sin of adultery, because a man, his flesh said, here, you, you can take that. You can enjoy that. I'll just share with you as I get to the end. And this is could be me. But this means a lot to me. The safest place for every leader to dwell is in the provision of where God has placed them and with whom and what 
he has provided to them. That is the safest place to dwell. Where has God, I mean, where has he placed me? Who has he provided to me? And what has he provided? It's not just enough. It's more than enough. It's more than enough. If I need anything beyond that, guess what? He's faithful. He'll provide it. But he's not calling me to go and take anything that he hasn't provided to me. When you find contentment there, not only will you glorify God in ministry, but you'll also have the heart of a giver. Why? Because I have everything I need. Like, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? The thing about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what were they lacking? What were they missing? Let me know. Nothing. (laughs) All they had to do was be content with where God had placed them, with who he had given them, and what he had given them, which my understanding says it wasn't bad. It might be a little nicer than the place that we're staying at this week, which is sweet, by the way. Thank you, FBC. It's Brandon, you're gonna you're in for a treat, bro. Brandon didn't get in until late last night, but it's so FBC, thank you. You guys are I mean, all the Living Faith Churches, one of the things that I know we learn as we travel and spend time with you all, God uses you to teach us about hospitality. So, so thank you. It's, it's sweet. But when leaders find that where God has placed them and who and what he's given them are insufficient is when they begin facilitating the transition in their heart from being a giver to a taker. And that never ends well, okay? So this is a good place to put a, a, a stop on it. I mean, an hour on the dime. So praise the Lord. You're like, yeah, praise the Lord. Pray and wrap it up. So I will do that. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless. God bless.